All right. Good morning, church. How are y'all this morning? Good, good. All right. My name is Frankie Tool. Uh, I get the privilege of being a pastor here at Connection Church. Uh, usually, most Sundays, I'm next door with the kindergarten through fifth graders, but uh, I'm in here today. Uh, lucky for you, just kidding. But also, um, not just me, but all of our kindergarten and fifth graders are in here this morning. So if you are a kindergarten through <clears throat> fifth grader, will you please stand up real quick? My kindergarten fifth graders in church, can we welcome them by a big round of applause? <clears throat> Yes, today is what we call uh, Family Worship Sunday, which is where our kindergarten, fifth graders come to big church with us. Um, and parents, your child or you should have received a orange folder. Uh, if you didn't, there should be some in the back. You can go get one. In those folders, on one side is stuff for your child, sermon notes to help them follow along uh, today. And on the other side is stuff for you. It says for the parent, which is you. Uh, on that is a handout that is information about what we like to call <clears throat> Family Worship Night. So Family Worship Night is uh, this thing that we try to support to help you, because KK, our um, motto is to help partner with you, the parents, to be the primary disciple maker for your children. So we want you uh, to be the primary disciple uh, maker and I know what you're thinking, Frankie, isn't that your job? But kind of my job is to partner with you. If you think about it, I see your kid once a week. You see your kid every day of the week. So you get a lot more opportunities than I do. So we want to partner with you, help you do that. And one way we think you can do that is through Family Worship Night. So Family Worship Night, information on that sheet, you look at it. Uh, it's a thing on our app that helps you. Uh, talk about what your child learned about Sunday uh, at your house on your own time. Go through that. It, it's, it's a lot more information, again, on that sheet. Uh, <clears throat> also, one thing we want to help partner with you and your children is uh, something we call Operation Christmas Child. So it's this event where basically you get a shoebox, you pack it full of things, and we send it uh, across the world to uh, kids and countries where they're not fortunate enough to to get Christmas presents, and you can do this with your child. We'll have more information uh, about that <clears throat> on social media and next week, so be on the lookout for that. Social media, look for it. Be here next week. You'll hear more about that. All right, so before we get started, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, and while you turn there, I'm going to say a quick prayer for us, and then we'll get started. So dear God, thank you for this day. God, uh, we just love you. We thank you. I uh, pray that you use this scripture, God, to speak to us, that we would, uh, just wouldn't leave it at our ears, God, but that we would take it uh, to our heart and to our soul, and that we would live it out throughout this week, God. We just praise you, we love you, and we thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, as we go through, uh, we're going to pull out three takeaways from this passage, three things we can learn throughout this passage. So start with me, chapter 10, verse 1. By the humility and gentle, gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you when away. So remember, Paul is writing this letter to the Corinthians at the, in, in Corinth, at the church in Corinth. 
and people in this church were saying things about Paul, saying that he wrote this harsh letter and sounded real bold, but then when he came face to face, he was timid and, and not as he was in his letter. And a group of people in the Corinth church called uh, super apostles, that's what Paul labels them, super, super apostles were using this to try to disclaim Paul's authority. So they were trying to tear down Paul saying because he's bold in a letter, but this way face to face, he shouldn't have authority over us. All right. And they were using this not, not just to tear down Paul, but try to elevate themselves. They wanted to elevate themselves into authority. Right? And, and what they were doing is, is using the world's definition of strength to define Paul. Right? The world's definition of strength, which is why in verse 1, Paul says, by the humility and gentleness, the CSB says meekness, by the humility and meekness of Christ. All right, of Christ, Paul's basically saying that you, you Corinthians, you have the wrong definition of strength. You're confusing my meekness for weakness. So what is meekness? Meekness is strength under control. So strength under control. So they were, they were calling him weak and timid, but, but based on Christ's example and how Christ lived and how we can look and see the way that he lived his life, Paul really, really he had the biggest strength of all. Meekness is true strength. You know, and our, our world still holds uh, this view. We base uh, manhood and strength on worldly things. You know, how hard you can throw or hit a baseball, how, how big of tires you can put on your truck, uh, how, how many women you can get with, whatever it is. We, we have all these worldly standards that we base manhood on. When the Bible clearly shows that a man of strength is meek, gentle, and humble. Because the, the biggest man of all, Jesus Christ, was those things. Jesus was meek, gentle, and humble. So men in here today, I want to challenge you off the bat. Let's step up to this. Let's step up to biblical manhood. Quit basing our manhood off of worldly things. Let's base our manhood off of what the Bible says and what Jesus did with his life. So pick up with me verse 2. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people. We think that we live by the standards of this world. Paul right here is it's kind of funny. He's getting a little irritated here. Basically, people, you know, they, they, they're coming at him saying basically he's hypocritical, living a double life. And, and what Paul is basically saying was, I was bold in my letter for correction, then gentle in person, basically to spare your feelings, like to not cause this big uproar. But then he's also like, but if you want me to come and be bold, I'll come lay down the law for you real quick. It's basically what Paul is saying. So we start to see this frustration, and we can see it through 2 Corinthians. He, he gets with the Corinthian church. But what's so awesome is through all of this frustration and, and anger and uneasiness, Paul still loves them for who they are. Verse 3, for though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. We are different from the world is what Paul is saying. The world goes this way. 
Christians should go this way. The world does its thing when Christians should be opposite of the world. Worldly wisdom and Christian wisdom don't look the same way. So the question you can ask yourself is, do I look like the world? That's pretty much what Paul was proposing to the Corinthians. Like, you're looking a little bit like the world. We should look more like Christ. And Paul gives us our our first of three takeaways right here. First one is the truth of spiritual warfare. The truth of spiritual warfare. Paul says we don't wage war the way the world does. The world fights fleshly things with more flesh. When sinful fleshly things happen, they fight it with sinful fleshly things. And and the more you do that, the worse the situation gets. For example, look at Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, Jesus gets arrested. And what's Peter's response? Cut a dude's ear off. Which, sidetrack, let's just talk about how bad Peter's aim is. Because I don't know for you, uh, ear chopping is not a fatal blow. All right, so he was obviously gone from the head, missed, hit the ear. But this is fighting flesh with flesh. And it just makes the situation worse. And you look at Moses. The Israelites needed water. God told Moses to speak to the rock. Moses gets frustrated and hits the rock. All right, fighting flesh with flesh just makes the situation worse. And when you fight flesh with that flesh, it's just going to keep getting worse. You can't fight spiritual battles with worldly weapons. We can't fight spiritual battles with worldly weapons. But here's the good news. There's another option besides worldly weapons. Look at at me uh, at verse 4 right here. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. Paul's saying, I don't have to use the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. These spiritual weapons that that Paul is talking about have have power to demolish strongholds, which is the first truth of spiritual warfare, that God has given us spiritual weapons. All right, Paul addresses the problem With a solution, the problem, spiritual warfare, you can't fight it with flesh. Here's the solution. God has given us spiritual weapons. And what we need to know is that that spiritual warfare is is active, not passive. So what does that mean? It's like this. Spiritual warfare, the the best defense is a good offense. All right? I know sometimes I've had this... uh, misunderstood. I look at spiritual warfare and I I think of almost like I'm sitting in this fortress and I'm throwing rocks at these things trying to come at me. But that's not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is you leading the charge against spiritual warfare. The best defense is a good offense. And God has given us three major weapons to fight in spiritual warfare. The first one is the word of God. The Word of God. God has given us His Word, the Bible. He's given it to us to help fight spiritual battles. The Word is used to encourage us through hard times, guide us through uncertainty, and fight against worldly thoughts. God has given us a book by Him 
for us. Why would we not use it? Like imagine going into a battle without a sword. Right? Why, why would we go into the everyday battle of life and not use the sword that God has given us, which is the word? All right, as a Christian, you know, you and I, we can't be prepared and ready and armed to go into battle if, if we're constantly not in the word, not hearing from God, not listening to God. Or right, we have to be in the word constantly. And I know what you're going to say, Frankie, it's not that easy. The Bible is hard to understand. I can't just pick it up and, and know what it says. And my answer is, that's okay. You know what the Bible says about the Bible? That it's hard to understand. The Bible can be hard to understand. But the great news is, listen, our, our church does an awesome job with this. We, we love to help partner with you to help you understand the Bible. And we do this through a lot of ways. One small group. That's, for me, the number one way I've been able to grow and understand the Word is through a group of guys my age coming together, reading it, and then talking about what it means. But also, we have reading plans. If you check out our app, we have something called the 412 Reading Plan. It comes with availability to read the Bible and then a devotion that explains it. All right, so we, we have these opportunities to, to step and understand the Bible, but it's all about taking that step of faith. All right, so, so if you're wanting to go to spiritual war and you don't have your sword, here, here it is. Take that step today. All right, real quick, I, I want to talk about this. I know this is our 9 a.m. service, and y'all are uh, above 25, but if you're under 25, can you raise your hand real quick? Just all right, a little more than I thought. All right, I'm also under 25. I'm uh, 23, and our, our, and our generation is in a different spot than, than people have ever been in. Our, our, our generation has grown up with social media and the way that it, it has changed the way life works. It, it's, it's good sometimes, but it's got a lot of negatives. And, and there's a lot of people on social media who will give their thoughts and opinions on the Bible, and sometimes people are right, but I know a lot of times I've seen people who are just wrong. And listen, I challenge you, my generation, man, get in the Word. You're not going to be able to, to fight and, and know what's right and what's wrong if you're not in the Word for yourself. Are you going to get led astray real quick if you don't know the truth for yourself? Also, my, my parents in here, whether you're a parent to a kid that's sitting beside you this morning or a parent to a kid that's back down the hallway, whatever you are, if you're a parent, listen, you need to be ready and understand and, and be looking for what your child is exposed to. Like monitoring what your child is exposed to because they'll be exposed to lies and to deceit and try to point your child away from Christ. And it is your responsibility as a parent to point them towards Christ. You know, that this is not just advice for the 25 and younger generation and, and for parents. This is great advice for all of us. Like the only way to truly make sure you aren't being led astray, is to know the word for yourself. You know, look at, look at the story of Jesus in the wilderness. 
You know, Satan comes to Jesus with Bible verses trying to lead him astray. He twists these, and Jesus is able to respond with Scripture in a truthful way. And you can't do this if you don't know Scripture, and you can't know Scripture if you don't read Scripture. So I challenge you in here, if you're going to use the sword, if you're going to use the Bible to fight off spiritual warfare, you have to be in it. So that's our first weapon, the sword of the Spirit, the Bible. Second, second weapon we have is the Spirit of God. Spirit of God. Jesus literally says before he ascends into heaven that he's sending us a helper. So before he ascends, he says, I'm sending you a helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And a lot of times we either uh, don't know or forget how great of a gift this really is. You know, he, he's, he's a part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity, and through a relationship with Christ, the Spirit can be with you always. Just to think about how great of a gift it is, look at uh, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You know, I think about my dad and uh, who, based on God's standards, is evil. Sorry, Dad, love you, but we're, we're evil. Me and you both, everyone in here, based off God's standards, we're evil. But I think about, he's given me such good gifts. Number one, being life. Right? He's given me such great gifts, and they make me feel love, and they reflect his heart for me and how he loves me. And then I think about how my heavenly Father, who is Good and perfect gives me such a great gift in the, in the Holy Spirit. It reminds me of how great of a gift this has to be. Like compared to the gifts my, my father has given me, this, this must be a great gift. You know, the Spirit would empower us to reflect Christ so that we can be an accurate witness for him. Christ gives us the great commission. But says we need a helper to empower us. And he, and he sends us the Spirit. But here's the important part of what the Spirit does. Through the Spirit, we are able to fix our eyes on Christ and our relationship with Him. So that's the important thing. The Spirit helps us fix our eyes on Christ and our relationship with Him. Then, then we are able to be fruitful in the world and show others what Christ has done for us. So what does that look like? All right, what, what does that look like in someone's life? It looks like the fruit of the Spirit. All right, the fruit of the Spirit is a byproduct of a relationship with Christ. All right, and we need to remember, Christ is the root to our fruit. So don't focus on the fruit, rather focus on Him, then the fruit naturally flow out of you. And then we start to see love. You start to love others. You start to be joyful. You have peace in your life. Big one, parents, you can be patient. And you can be patient with your kids when your eyes are fixed on Jesus, then patience flows out of you. You can be a kind person. Goodness, you can have goodness that reflects God. You can be faithful to his word. You can be gentle, self-controlled. And I don't know about you, when I've set my eyes on Christ and I become a self-controlled person, it's a lot easier to battle spiritual warfare. 
You know, when adversity hits and, and the Spirit helps me set my eyes on Christ, in that moment, I can then battle spiritual warfare because I'm self-controlled through Him. All because the Spirit has set my eyes on Christ. So how, how, how can we use the Spirit as a weapon in spiritual warfare? For the believer, you can fix your eyes on Christ. The unbeliever, you can fix your eyes on Christ. Answer, we fix our eyes on Christ. Then the Spirit can do His work through us. Then the fruits flow out of us. So the question is, are your eyes on Christ? So, so that's, that's our first two weapons. We have the Bible, the Word of God. The second one, the Spirit of God. Then lastly, not just those two, but also, number three, prayer. Prayer. God has given us prayer. Ephesians 6, 18 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So question, how, how often in your life when you face a difficulty is your first instinct to run to prayer? Now, when you face something difficult in your life, how often is that first instinct prayer running to him? Or flip it, how, how often when you, you've received a blessing do you run to God in prayer and thankfulness? You know, what, what's not happening because you're not praying? I know we, we, we go to small group and we're like, yeah, this has been a problem in my life for a while. I've really been struggling with this. I want it to get better. I'm, I'm tired of struggling with this. Then we leave group and never pray about it. Like we're not using one, a third of the spiritual weapons God has given us. Our first instinct in any situation, good or bad, should always be a prayer. So the question to ask is, these are our three weapons God has given us. Are you using them? Are, are you fighting spiritual battles with these spiritual weapons? Or are you trying to fight a spiritual battle with a fleshly weapon? So that's, that's the first truth about spiritual warfare, that God has given us spiritual weapons to fight. So look in verse 5. This is what we can do with those spiritual weapons. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Every thought in our mind. We are able through Christ to take it captive. Which is our second truth about spiritual warfare. That, that spiritual warfare takes place in our minds. Right, so, so we know what weapons we got. Now, now, now we know where the battle takes place. All right, there's no point in going to battle and not knowing where you're battling. Craig Groeschel says it like this. Our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. What we think shapes who we are. All right, so now we know the weapons that we got and where it takes place, where, where the battle happens. So knowing those two things, what can happen? Number one, it can eliminate strongholds. 
It can eliminate strongholds. So what is a stronghold? Stronghold is anything in your life that seems unchangeable. A wrong way of thinking that controls your life. What you think controls what you believe. What you believe controls what you do. Some examples are addictions, habits, personality traits, emotions, reactions. These are some strongholds in our life. And through the weapons God has given us, we are able to fight against these strongholds in our life, in spiritual warfare. So what does that look like? I know for me in my life, there were some uh, lustful things I did before I was saved. Like I, I knew morally that they were wrong and I shouldn't do them and I didn't want to participate in them. And I would try different, you know, worldly, fleshly methods to, to get over them. You know, they say, if you can just go 21 days, you can break a habit. But that never worked. And, and all this quitting, cold turkey, whatever it was, none of these ever seemed to work. However, you know, I got saved. I get the spirit and it was crazy. I didn't desire those things anymore. Those, those strongholds in my life were no longer a thing. And, and before I knew it, I was no longer a captive to them. So when, when you become aware of the strongholds in your life that are in your mind and use the spiritual weapons God has given you, they are no longer a stronghold to you. You are free of them through Christ. So the question you can ask yourself today is this. What stronghold in your life feels unbreakable? What stronghold in your life feels unbreakable? And have you trusted in God to take them away? Have you used the spiritual weapons he has given us to fight against them? What in your life feels unbreakable? So that's the first thing we can eliminate strongholds. The second thing we can do when we know our weapons in the battleground is we can eliminate contradictions against God. Eliminate contradictions against God. As a Christian, everything the world teaches and pushes towards us contradicts what Christ says. The world and Christ are opposite. Christ says he is the only thing that will truly satisfy one and only, the only thing. And the world says, how about you try this, 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 or this, and you pick which one you think will satisfy you. And here's the thing, everything the world pushes towards us to look at for satisfaction passes away. In 1 John 2, it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Let me say that again. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. I think, I think of people in this world who, who by the world's standards have achieved it all. But yet, they still look thirsty as ever. I think the, the biggest example of this is probably the third best quarterback of all time, Tom Brady, who has more Super Bowl rings than anyone else, millions upon millions of dollars, had a supermodel wife, whatever car he wants, whatever you want, he can have. Yet, he's like the most unsatisfied person in the world. He had an interview, and th this is a quote from an interview 
uh, with Tom Brady. There's, there's times where I'm not the person I want to be. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings, now seven, and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think God, is, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? That, that's one of world standards most successful people ever, and he still wants more. So if Tom Brady has reached the top of the world standards, what makes us think in Vidalia, Georgia, we can reach these standards and be fully satisfied in the world? You know, this is the biggest contradiction of the world that it can offer true satisfaction. It's a lie. It's a lie. The only satisfaction is through Christ. C.S. Lewis says, the fact that nothing in this world can satisfy us points to how we were created for more than this world. And it's more than what this world can offer. And through spiritual warfare weapons, we are given the ability to fight off this contradiction and any other contradiction that comes against us. But the question is, do you? Do you, do you fight against these or do you just fall into what the world says? Then lastly, the last thing we can do when we, when we know the weapons and know the battleground is we, we can make every thought obedient to Christ. You know, through these weapons and through understanding uh, where the true battleground is, uh, our minds, uh, we're able to make every thought obedient to him. This does not mean a Christian is supposed to be perfect. Let me make that clear. A Christian is not going to be perfect. But what it does mean is that Christians have a desire to pursue God and be more and more like Christ every day. I mean, even, even Paul, the author of Corinthians, says it like this in Romans. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I mean, he's talking about spiritual warfare right here. The battle that a Christian goes into every single day, he's saying that we are sinful by nature and will always sin. However, through spiritual warfare, using the weapons God has given us, we are able to take every thought captive in obedience to him. Because he has given us the word, the spirit, and prayer, we are able to fight disobedient thoughts. It's like this. It's like an air filter, you know, like the one in your house, probably a little dusty right now. But an air filter, it, it, we, we, through Christ, can put a filter on our mind and we can filter out all of these problems, these negativities, any spiritual warfare. We are able to filter it through our relationship with him. And that's the only way to do it. The only way to use these spiritual warfare weapons is through a relationship with God. So the question is, are you fighting the battle? Are you, are you, do you have that filter on your mind or are you just letting it do as it pleases? You go with the world. Wherever it wants to go, you go. Pick back up verse six. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. Paul is telling the Corinthians right here, uh, uh, you have to be obedient to God and deal with these super apostles in your church that are there to divide your church. You know, the Corinthians, they were battling two things. One, 
these worldly super apostles who were there to divide the church, then also they were battling their own flesh, you know, their own flesh to, to, to give in to what they were saying. Which brings us to our third and final truth about spiritual warfare is that our fight is against our flesh and the world. Right, so, so we know the spiritual weapons we have. We know the battleground where we're fighting. And lastly, we got to know who we're fighting against. All right? Our flesh is the first one. Our flesh is evil. We're, we're born into worldly and, and evil and into a need for saving. Every single one of us. You know, we've already talked about how we, we can't fight flesh with flesh. We can't win on our own. Paul says it like this. When he, when, this is what it's like to try to win on your own. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. The only way to battle our flesh is through focusing on Christ. The best thing we can do is realize just how fleshly and sinful we are. I mean, look, look, Paul says, what a wretched man I am. You Paul, you know, Paul, the author of 13 books in the New Testament who single-handedly is responsible for the spread of the gospel throughout the earth. You know, without Paul, we're not in here today. And, and that guy saying, what a wretched, simple man I am. So the, the most dangerous place to be is a place of acceptance of yourself. As soon as you do that, you will become comfortable with your sin and rely on your own good works and forget how much you need Christ. You start to convince yourself, I'm not that sinful. And the more you say that, the more you say that, you'll, you'll eventually think, of course God accepts me. I'm good enough. And, and we forget and don't realize how much we really need Christ. And the best way to remember that is to remember how sinful we truly are. And not only do we fight against our, our flesh, but also the world. You know, we talked about it already. The world will always contradict what Christ in the Bible says. And if we can understand this, then we can overcome the strongholds this world has. We can realize the only satisfaction in this life is Jesus Christ. So the question to ask yourself today, I love giving questions. I love having yourself examine yourself. What does your spiritual warfare look like? So, so what does spiritual warfare in your life look like? We've already talked about it. We, we know the weapons. We know where it happens. We know who it's up against. But the question is, when you go to battle, uh, do you even go to battle? Like, are you using what God has given us or are you just sitting on the sidelines, not in the battle at all, just going where the world goes? The only way you can battle these things, this spiritual warfare, is through a relationship with God. The only way. 
It's through a relationship with him. So what does your spiritual warfare look like? Pick it back up with me in verse 7. You are judging by appearances. If anyone is confident that they belong to Christ, they should consider again that we belong to Christ just as much as they do. Paul is saying, grace, grace ain't just for you. I have the same grace that you have. And I think it's real funny because we, we still do this today. We like to say, man, look at, look at Mark. I can't believe Mark said that about Tina. Then we go to small group and we're like, yeah, just struggling to show Tina Christ-like love. Still can't believe Mark's like that, though. And you're in the same boat as him. We're we're so quick to not offer grace to someone else, but want grace for us. And we're, we're quick to forget that the grace God shows is not just to you, but to everyone else. Verse eight, so even if I boast somewhat freely about the authority the Lord gave us for building you up rather than tearing you down, I will not be ashamed of it. I do not want to seem to be trying to frighten you with my letters, for some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. Uh, Paul's authority was given to him by the Lord. And these super apostles, again, they're, they're doing whatever they can to try to take that authority away from Paul. You know, God has put authority in the church, not not to elevate a specific person, but to build up and equip the church. Ephesians 4.11 says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. God gives us pastors, elders, teachers, not to elevate them to a higher status, but to help equip everyone to go into life every day living for him. And then we, we, we start to see Paul uh, defend this throughout this passage. And, and through his defense of himself, he gives us a great example, a great example that we can be by, or be, we can live by. And our second takeaway is this, Paul's example. So let's look at Paul's example. Verse 11, such people should realize that what we are in our letters when we are absent, we will be in our actions when we are present. He's saying, I'm going to walk it like I talk it. What I say I am, outside I am when I come to you, I am what I say I am. Which is his first example that we can look at, which is his his actions match his words. His actions match his words. Paul was being accused of acting two different ways. Acting a certain way when he was away from the Corinthians than when he was with the Corinthians, acting a different way. And what we know about Paul is that he he practiced what he preached. What he said he did, he meant it. What he said he lived like, he really lived like. So what does this look like for us? We should practice what we preach. Too often we start to make Christianity like this Facebook photo album, and I'm not against that, but uh, we, we make it this Facebook photo album with pictures of our coffee, Bible, and notes. And then five minutes later, we're on 280, honking the horn, giving everybody the number one as we pass by. 
And too often we, we don't practice what we preach. And this is the most detrimental thing that a church can do. Look at what Gandhi said. Gandhi said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. So many people in here have a problem with Christianity, not, be, not because of Christ, but because of Christians. And some of us in here, we have to start practicing what we preach. What we say we are, we better be. All right, and the best way to do that is to just place your eyes on him. The more you look at him, the more fruits come from your life. And whatever you say will happen because the fruits are flowing out of you. So the question is, do you live two different lives? Like on, on Sunday mornings, are you a completely different person from every day of the week? You know, that, that's not a relationship with Christ when you live, live that way. That's a membership with Christ. It's a lot like my gym membership. I only see that place like once a month. All right, we're not in a membership with Christ. We're in a relationship with him. So if that's you, my encouragement to you is put your eyes on him. You know, Christ wants all of you, not just a part of you. Also to some in here, man, you might be on the flip side of this. And you feel that the people of the church don't reflect Christ. And because of that, you want to turn away from Christianity and you've allowed Christians to shape your view of Christ. Here, my encouragement to you, if that's you, man, put your eyes on Jesus. Christians aren't going to be perfect. Now, Christians have a standard to live to, but Christians aren't perfect. So put your eyes on Jesus. Experience him first. And don't base your view of Christ on Christians. Look to him so that's Paul, Paul's example is, is, is first off that he practices what he preaches. But pick back up, verse 12, he says, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. So by comparing themselves to themselves, when he says that, he's mean that they're comparing their self with others around them, they are able to justify their sin in their lives. And Paul says this isn't wise. This leads you down a path of self-righteousness. And Paul's second example to us is he doesn't compare himself with others around him. You know, he, he understood the most important thing, that the standard is Christ. The standard is Christ, meaning if we are to compare ourselves to anyone it should be to Christ. All right, this is the same truth for us today. If we're going to compare ourselves to anyone, it better be Christ. Like if you, if you really wanted to try to earn your way to heaven, you can. Like go ahead, try. You can try it. But, but remember, the requirement is perfection. And we've all already messed that up. We've all already sinned and we're sinful and we, we can't do it on our own. So Paul understands that if we want to compare our goodness and our qualities, we better compare them to the only one who was perfect. And when we do that, then we should see that we need him. Like how often, in, instead of doing that, do we compare ourselves to someone else? Like I, I know I'm a little rough, but Johnny over there, whew, I'm not Johnny, all right? I, I, I'm, I'm doing a little better than him. 
You know, we slowly start to do uh, that with everything in our life until one day we've convinced ourselves that we aren't as bad as everyone else. And if we aren't as bad as everyone else, why wouldn't God just accept us who we are? I mean, I'm not Hitler, is what we like to say. I'm not Hitler. Would God really send me to the same hell he sent Hitler to? The Bible says, yes, he would, because our sinfulness deserves punishment. The Bible says that the wages, the payment for sin, for just one sin, so if you've just sinned one time, the wages of sin is death. So the thing Paul understood is, that, the, 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 that these super apostles didn't was that he better compare himself with Christ. Because that, that reminds him, that should remind us of our need for Christ. It reminds us that we have a problem. Our sinful nature is a problem. It separated us from Christ forever. But because he lived that perfect life, he didn't have to die because the wages for sin is death. That means if you don't sin, you don't die. But because Jesus didn't sin and then he died, we now have the ability to be with Christ forever. So ask yourself, are you, am I busy comparing myself to others for my own self-righteousness? Or do you compare yourself to God's standards, which should do nothing but build up a dependency on Jesus? You know, Paul understood that, and because he did, he's able to say this. Look at verse 13. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits because he has no boast in anything but Christ because it's not about his self-righteousness but what Jesus did. But we'll confine our boasting to the sphere of service God has assigned to us, a sphere that also includes you. We are not going too far in our boasting as would be the case if we had not come to you, for we did get as far as you with the gospel of Christ. Neither do we go beyond our limits by boasting of work done by others. Paul understands that in, in ourselves, we have nothing to boast about. I can't boast about Frankie. There's nothing good for me to boast about for myself. I'm imperfect and I'm a wretched sinner. Like what, is, what is there to boast about? And he gives us this third example is that our ultimate boast is in the Lord. Paul's ultimate boast is in the Lord. It wasn't about Paul. Paul's life was not about Paul, and he knew that. He knew what he was being used for, by God, for God. So why, why would we ever boast in ourselves when someone paints a painting? Who gets the praise? Not the paintbrush, but the painter. God is the painter. We're the paintbrush. He just uses us. Why would we boast in God's ability to use us? Why could we ever boast in ourselves? Our boast is in Christ alone. We have nothing to boast about except the work Christ has done. He goes on, verse 15. Our hope is that as your faith continues to grow, our sphere of activity among you will greatly expand so that we can preach the gospel in the regions beyond you. Paul was challenging the Corinthians to, to, to start to live up to the Great Commission. Paul wanted to strategically use Corinth as a place to launch into other cities to spread the gospel. And through these last few verses in this chapter, God, Paul begins to reveal God's design for us. Here's our third takeaway, God's design for us. 
Verse 16 shows us the first part of God's design for us, which is to spread the gospel. Christ gives us a clear command before he ascends into heaven. Matthew 28, 19, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. All means all. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It's clear what we should be doing. Very clear. We should be spreading the gospel. Because again, all means all. All means your neighbor. All means the person who works beside you. All means the person that gets on your nerves every day. All means all. We should be spreading the gospel to everyone. God has put us in specific places in order to share the gospel. He's put you in your work, your home, your activities, your friend group. He's put us in there in order to live missionally, to show others around you what the gospel can do for them. Now, what if every Christian in this room took it upon themselves to invest into one person in 2023? Just one, the bare minimum, one. Like every, the number would double. And then 2024, you get that double number and it's going to double and double. That's just one person each year. And if, if you had the cure to cancer right now, wouldn't you go share it? Like you, you wouldn't just keep that to yourselves. You'd want to share it. And we, we don't have the cure to cancer. We have the cure to something far greater. We have the cure to life and to our sinful nature. We have Jesus Christ. Why wouldn't you want others to experience what you have? Every time I've seen someone get saved around me, the very first thing they do, the very first thing is that they go and tell others about it immediately. I remember one time I had a friend. He came to the office. He was talking to Blake. He, he gives his life to Christ. He, I literally walk, watched him walk out of Blake's office out of the building, into his truck, and call every person he knew to tell them what God had done. My Christians in this room, do you have that same heart to share the gospel? My God's designed for us to share the gospel to everyone we can. If you're going to remember anything, remember all means all. That means everywhere you go, we have the opportunity to share the gospel. And pick back up in verse 16, he also says, for we do not want to boast about work already done in someone else's territory, but let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The second part of God's design is that we would not boast in our own selfish glory, that we would boast in the, the Lord's glory alone. So how often do we begin to boast and point to our glory? Like, well, look what I can do. Look what I've done. When the truth is, every good thing is from the Lord. So if everything good is from him, what do we have to celebrate in ourselves? So his glory alone, why, why his glory alone? Like why? That might be your question, why? Why do we have to do that? Well, let's do something. Let's, let's compare our glory to his glory. Because right? that's the two options. We either share our glory or his. Our glory doesn't last. No earthly glory ever lasts. No records last. You know, the richest man on the planet 100 years ago is no longer the richest planet, man on the planet today. You know, the Beatles have that famous quote on how uh, they'll be more popular to, than, than Jesus. If I'm being honest with you, I don't know a name of a person in the Beatles. Dead serious, I don't. 
Man's glory is never going to last. Any glory you strive to build will no longer be. But not only does our glory not last, but also our glory leads to death. Our glory leads to death. When you, when you point, point to your glory, it just leads to death. Striving after our own glory will only lead us to death. It leads us down a road we, we aren't even capable of taking. Your glory will bring you no satisfaction. You'll always want more, 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 more. Until one day you're on your deathbed and you look back and realize everything you've worked so hard for doesn't matter. And we find glory in lots of different ways. Like the glorious house remodel. Let's have the nicest house on the street. You know, the type of glory that when you chase it really means nothing. Because if you think about it, you get that glorious house. You get whatever you're looking for. In 60 years, someone moves into that glorious house and they're going to put powder blue bathrooms and a shag carpet in your living room. And that glory you just build up means nothing anymore. And that's what our glory does. That's what our glory does. But thankfully, God's glory is far greater. What's his glory? His glory is eternal. Our glory, it doesn't last, but his is never ending. His glory will never fade. Throughout the earth's history, religions have come and gone. People have come and gone. But one thing has always and will always remain, and that is God, and that is God's glory. And it's eternal, and it leads to life. Where ours leads to death, his leads to a life filled of satisfaction in him. But, but you can't experience that chasing your own glory. In your life, you can either choose to exalt your glory or exalt God's glory. You can't do both. It's his or it's yours. And picking yours leads to unsatisfaction and death. So the question is, in your life, whose glory are you going to chase? God's glory or your glory? And he ends this chapter perfectly right here, verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. And the last thing we see about God's design for us is that he wants us to experience him. The only way to experience God, though, the only way to experience him is through a relationship with Christ. Some of us in here, we, we have a relationship with him already. Like you, you've already experienced him. So my question to you, for the, for the person here who has experienced him, man, do you have a heart for others around you to experience him as well? Because again, we got that cure, but are you going to share it? And if you don't have that heart... Like if you have experienced them, but sometimes you have a hard heart to, to seeing others experience them, my suggestion for you is this. Take a step back and see what's wrong. A heart that has experienced God is a heart that wants others to do the same. But then some of us in here, we've never experienced God at all. And I think there's, there's two type of people who've never experienced God. Like maybe you've grown up in a church you did all the Christian things. You knew about Jesus. You knew the stories. Maybe you even got baptized and even claimed to be a Christian, but you've never truly experienced a relationship with him. 
Or maybe you're someone in here who's, who's ran away from God your whole life. Never wanted anything to do with him. Never, never wanted to try the Christian thing out. Maybe for some reason, though, you're here today. My, 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 my challenge to both of you, if, if either of those are you in here, look to Christ. Like a relationship with him is available today. And everyone in here would real quick bow your heads. If, if that is you, if you've truly never experienced Christ, you don't have that relationship with him. But maybe today you, you feel God calling you and, and you want to take that step of faith into a relationship with him. I want to challenge you to do one thing real quick. Be bold and raise your hand. A relationship with Christ is available today. And if you're already a Christian in here, you do have that relationship with him. My challenge to you is as, as we get ready to respond in worship, I challenge you to pray and ask God to place someone in your life this week, this month, the rest of this year, whatever, someone you can share the gospel with that you can show what Christ has done in you and through you. As we get ready to respond, that's what I want to challenge you with today. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this day. God, I thank you for all that you've done. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. God, I pray that you would use us in mighty ways, that you would use us to spread the gospel, that you would give every Christian in here the opportunity to show the gospel to someone this week. God, I pray as we go into spiritual warfare, we wouldn't forget our weapons, we wouldn't forget the battleground or who we're up against, God, but that we would look to you. And it's in your heavenly name I pray, amen.